Galatians chapter 3 and the verses that we're going to be handling this morning are verses 15 to 22. And as we begin, let's go to the Lord and ask His help in prayer. Father, we come now and as... I was praying a moment ago at the the start of the service. We ask that You would come, O Lord, and that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that You would enable us to, to see and to understand Your Word now as it is opened before us. Because, Father, if, if You do not come in the power of Your Spirit, then I, I stand up here in vain. Because there's nothing that I can do, no matter what my speech is like, no matter how impressive it may be, how eloquent it may be, it would fall on deaf ears and it would fall on deaf hearts. So Father, we ask that You would come. Oh Lord, come in the power of Your Spirit and enable me to preach Your Word with power, and that You would enable Your people who sit before me now this morning to hear it with that same power. That They would see it and receive it as it is, truth, and also as delight, joy, great blessings coming from Your very mouth, O Lord. O we ask and pray that Your Word would accomplish its purposes this morning, that You would come and that You would do a mighty work among Your people, that You would build up Your people, and that You would save those who are lost, who do not know Your Son, who do not know the Gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen. I think all of us this morning, gathered together here, I think all of us would agree that the Old Testament as we've been looking at, uh, especially over the last couple of weeks as we've been walking through Paul's letter, I think we would all agree that the Old Testament is often difficult to read and often difficult to understand. And I'm sure that we could all come up with a, a variety of reasons that show us why we often struggle with the Old Testament. I think it would be very hard to to name probably at least five reasons why the Old Testament is often, and the Bible for that matter, but specifically the Old Testament, why why it's hard to read, why it's hard to understand. I'm sure we could all give a variety of reasons that show that. But know that you're, you're not alone in this area, thinking that it's difficult to read and difficult to understand. Because as we've been seeing in this letter, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, the Christians there at Galatia, they struggled with it too. They struggled with this same thing. They struggled to understand the Old Testament Scriptures. They struggled to understand how to interpret them. They struggled how to, how to live in light of God's law now that Jesus Christ had come on the scene. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he traveled to Galatia and he, he planted those churches there and he preached to them, undoubtedly he had spoken to the Galatian Christians about the Old Testament, told them some things about it, and maybe showed them how to interpret some of the Old Testament and showed them that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. But even after that, there were still things about the Old Testament, specifically dealing with the law, that they weren't grounded in. And we know that because the Judaizers, the false teachers who Paul has been writing against, they came in to these churches and convinced the Galatians that the Old Testament teaches that they need works on top of their faith in Christ and what He has done for them. They have convinced the Galatians that they need works on top of this, that they need the Old Testament law on top of what Christ has done for them in order to be justified or counted righteous before God, which is not true. 
And for the past couple of weeks now, as we've been seeing in chapter 3, Paul is trying to show the Galatians that what the Judaizers, Judaizers are teaching them is wrong. It's a lie. What they are trying to convince them of is a lie. It's not true. And that's what we've been seeing throughout chapter 3 now for the past couple of weeks. And the ways that we've seen Paul do this, the way that we've seen Paul appeal to the Galatians over the past couple of weeks, is one, he's appealed to their their experience of how they received the Spirit of God or how they became Christians. And we saw that in verses 1-6, to the the first part of verse 6. Paul was showing the Galatians, if you look back to your initial experience of how you became a Christian, you will see that you received the Spirit of God through faith and not through works of the law, not through anything that you could have done, Galatians. Paul then appealed to the Old Testament Scriptures, and he gave them the example of Abraham. He showed them that Abraham was justified by God through his faith, and not through works of the law or through anything else that Abraham accomplished on his own, through his own merit. And therefore, Paul shows that those who are blessed along with Abraham are those of faith and not works. And we saw that in the second part of verse 6 down to verse 9. And then lastly, last week, as we were going through verses 10 to 14, Paul again appealed to the Old Testament Scriptures and he showed the Galatians that all those who depend on works of the law are under a curse, which is everybody who is not of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we went to Romans chapter 2 and we saw that God has written His law, even though they may not know the Mosaic law, He has written His general law on everyone's heart. We know right from wrong. Therefore, those who are not of faith in Christ are under the curse of God's law. But for those who are of faith, they have been redeemed out from underneath this curse because Jesus Christ bore that curse for them, for us, on the tree. And Paul went to multiple Old Testament passages to show us this, to show us how the Old Testament has always taught this from the very beginning all the way back to the example of Abraham. Now, even after Paul has brought up these examples from the Old Testament that show it has always been about faith and not works, even though he has already, even though he has done this, that he's brought up all of this proof, there is still some confusion, isn't there? And we were talking about some of this last week in last week's sermon, talking about how even though after the examples that Paul has brought up, some of this is still confusing. I mean, how, have all, how does all of this work out? I mean, if it's always been about faith and it's, it hasn't been about works, that we've always been justified before God by faith like Abraham was, then why does God give the law? Why does He give the law? What's His purpose for the law? I mean, wouldn't that go against the example of Abraham being justified by faith? So how does law and grace or promise, as Paul is going to say in verses 15 to 22, how does law and grace fit together? How are we meant to understand the law in light of God's grace or His promises? Well, those are the type of questions that Paul is about to start dealing with here in verses 15 to 22 and throughout the rest of chapter 3 and on into to chapter 4. He's going to begin expanding upon these texts that he's brought up in the previous two passages that we've looked at. He's going to begin to expand upon them and show how all of this has worked out through God giving the law and how none of it contradicts one another. And the way Paul is going to do this in our passage this morning, is in verses 15 to 18, we're going to see Paul 
give the Galatian Christians an example that will help them to understand that the law does not do away with God's promise to Abraham that He gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. He's going to give them an everyday example that has the aim of helping them to understand these things. We're going to see that in verses 15 to 18. And then, after Paul states all of this, gives this example, questions arise. Questions that need to be answered. Questions that need to be fleshed out. And that's what he's going to begin doing in verses 19 to 22. Two questions are going to come up that he's going to begin to answer. So let's let's read the verses together and then we'll walk through them and see how Paul unfolds all of this before us. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. You can follow along as I read. And if you're visiting this morning and you want to follow in the translation that I'm reading from, you can take the Pew Bible that's in front of you, which is the ESV translation. You can follow along with it if you'd like. Beginning in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes... To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or confirms what ratified means. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul or make void, do away with, a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul begins in this passage by saying to the Galatians, to give a human example, brothers, or to give an everyday example. Paul is seeking to give the Galatians something that they can understand that will make all of this this theology, all of this doctrine that he's just laid out by referring to the Old Testament, easy to understand. It's almost like giving an illustration, you could say. Like preachers often do if they've just got through unfolding a difficult text and it's thick. Sometimes they'll give an illustration that corresponds to what they've just said and it kind of fleshes it out a little bit and you're able to see what he's talking about. Oh yeah, I see the connection, it makes sense. So that's what he's doing here in verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers. And the example is this. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now in their day... This may, be, may have been an everyday example, but you know, 2,000 years later, as we sit here in the sanctuary of Alts Chapel, it's not really an everyday example anymore, is it? I mean, some of you may be saying, what the heck is a covenant? I've never even heard that word before. Paul, this doesn't really help me out all that much. So what is a covenant? What is Paul referring to here? An easy or a, a good, well, an easy and a good definition for a covenant is this. A covenant is a binding promise. A binding promise. It is a promise that was made between two people 
that actually bound them together. And a good example of today, you think about a covenant, is the marriage relationship. When two people are married, they enter into a covenant, a binding relationship. As God says in His Word, they become one flesh. This is a covenant put on display in marriage. And this is what Paul is talking about, similar to what Paul is talking about. So Paul is telling them in verse 15, think about this Galatians. Think about whenever someone was to make a a covenant in your day. When the covenant was made, and after it's been ratified or after it's been confirmed, it's sealed, right? When, When two people in your day make this covenant, you can't change it. You can't go back and change it. Nor can you make it void. You can't do away with it. You make this covenant and it's there. And so when we come to verse 17, he's going to continue the argument and he's going to say, how much more is this true of a God-made covenant? That's what he's going to do as we continue through this section. Now I have to say that Historians have brought up a debate about what Paul's doing here because apparently in Roman law, in their system of law, covenants or testaments didn't work like this. That somebody could make a covenant and they could go back and change it. So they argue and say, well, what's Paul referring to? And they say, well, he could be referring to a part of Roman law that we just don't know about that's been lost throughout history. Or he's referring to Greek law, which said that you could make a covenant and not change it or add to it or make it void. Or he's referring to Jewish traditions that also says what he's saying here. Now, whatever he's referring to, it honestly, it doesn't really matter Because the point that he's making is that in their day, they had a system of law where they could make a covenant with one another and it could not be changed. That's what he's saying and that's what would have been going on in their minds and they would have understood it. So that's what's going on here. No matter if it's Roman, Greek, or Jewish tradition or law, that's the point that he's making and it stands. They would have known what Paul is talking about. So he says, think about this. When a covenant is made, it cannot be changed and it cannot be done away with. How much more true is this of God when He makes a covenant? Now we come to to verse 16. And as we come to verse 16, it seems that Paul kind of just leaves us hanging because he starts talking about something different. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now he's not leaving you hanging. He's not just cutting the argument off and just leaving it there. What Paul is doing is before he finishes his argument that he begins there in in verse 15, he wants to make sure that we're all talking about the same covenant that God made with Abraham or the same promise that He made to Abraham. Because evidently, there were some who were misinterpreting this covenant that God made, probably the, the Judaizers. They were probably saying that when God made this covenant, it was primarily to the Jewish people as a whole and not to one individual in particular, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to shatter that. And that's what he does here in verse 16. He says, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And he interprets that word in the singular form, not the plural. Now this is difficult because that word can mean both. When you say offspring, you can refer to many. The word can refer to many. I mean, if you refer to a man's offspring and he has twelve, then you're referring to all of them. But also, you can refer to his offspring 
and you can refer to one individual. And so Paul is looking back into Genesis where God made that covenant. He's saying, yes, that's true. That word does refer to many. But when God makes this covenant with Abraham, ultimately, He's referring to one individual. Even though many are included in this, one individual is in mind. And the Old Testament often works that way. When God makes a promise, you may see an immediate fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment does not come until later on. And that's what Paul is saying here. So I want, I want to show you a good example of how this is going on in the book of Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. This is an example of where God gives this covenant to, to Abraham and He refers to offspring, including many, but ultimately referring to one. In, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has already been given Isaac, one of the offspring that's been promised to Abraham. He's been given Isaac, but then God commands him to go and to sacrifice Isaac on this altar on top of a mountain. And so Abraham obeys, he goes, he puts Abraham on the altar, and right before he goes to sacrifice him, the Lord tells him to stop. And he says, Abraham, now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you have faith in my promises. And this is what he says, continuing in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. Referring to many there. Offspring refers to many. As the stars of heaven, and as of the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess... Now pause for a moment there where he just used offspring. There he's referring to one offspring. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, again referring to ultimately one, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there you have God repeating His covenant that He had already made earlier on in the book of Genesis. There He's repeating His covenant to Abraham and He's referring to many, but ultimately He has in mind one offspring in particular. Now, given the things that we just talked about, about this word and how it can be difficult to translate because it means two, how can we trust Paul? You know, how can we trust Paul's interpretation of this? Because, like I said, evidently there were other people who had different, different interpretations, like the Judaizers, saying that it referred to many. Ultimately, it referred to many. Somehow, construing or twisting God's intended interpretation. How are we to trust Paul? How do we know he's getting the interpretation right? Paul how do we know you're not making a mistake when you say that God ultimately refers to one individual and not to many? I'm going to give you two reasons. One, we've already referred to, and it's what Paul has brought up throughout chapters 1 and 2, which we walk through together. You remember what Paul showed us there? That he received his apostolic authority... His gospel message, not from man, but ultimately by God, directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't receive His authority. He didn't receive His gospel message from a man. And He's not a man-pleaser. And preaching His gospel and interpreting the Scriptures, He doesn't seek to please man. He seeks to please God, the one who has given Him His authority and given Him His message. So you can trust that whenever He looks back and interprets 
a, a word, even a single word. You know, as detailed as this is, you can trust that God, ultimately God, is speaking through Paul so that God's gospel message is known. Because as Paul said, I received it all from God and I don't seek to please man. I seek to please my Lord Jesus Christ when I preach and when I unfold the Scriptures to you. Second, you can see this when you read the Bible if you keep that promise in mind. Okay, so many of you just started your Bible plan over. If you're like me, I, I go through a, a chronological Bible plan where I start from the beginning of the Bible and I go through it in order all the way to the end. Well, I just got through reading through Genesis where God made that promise. Now, if I keep that promise in mind as I continue to read throughout the Bible, I should be looking for God to fulfill that promise, right? He told Abraham that through his offspring all of the nations of the world were going to be blessed. Now, I need to be looking to see how all of that's going to be fleshed out and how it's, how it's going to be fulfilled. Well, as I continue to read, I see some of it being fulfilled. Because when you come to the book of Exodus, you see that the people of Israel, the Israel are a great multitude. They're as numerous as the stars of heaven, as numerous as the the sand on the seashore. That was a part of the promise. But where's the blessing at? How are the people all getting blessed by Abraham's offspring? You don't see that. Because even though you have great heroes that appear like Moses who rescue the people out, you see them fail. They fail over and over again. And even Moses fails. And you continue reading and you see other heroes of the faith like King David or the prophets like Daniel, great men, Joshua who led the people into the promised land. You see these great men, but yet they, they fall short and, and they die ultimately. And you think to yourself, okay God, where's the blessing at? Where's this blessing of Abraham that you've promised? I don't see it yet. I see some of it, but how are the nations to be blessed? through your offspring. And it just continues on and on and on. The Israelites just failing horribly until you turn to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to turn with me there. Matthew chapter 1. You, so, in your Bible plan, if, you, you know, if you're going through it in the way that I just described, You've been going through the Old Testament, now you come to Matthew chapter 1, and you read this in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, which refers to another covenant that God later made to David that I don't have time to get into right now. But look what he says next. The son of who? The son of Abraham. And so, in your mind, having that promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis, light should be going off in your mind. Whoa, wait, wait, hold up. I remember, God made His covenant to Abraham. Now, who is this Jesus Christ? The Son of Abraham. And then as you read throughout Matthew, as you read throughout the Gospel accounts, you see very quickly that this man is like no other. As people said whenever he taught from God's Word, I've never heard any man speak like this before. And he doesn't fail. Every trial, every temptation that comes before him, he doesn't fail. Instead, he overcomes them. He loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loves his neighbor as himself. You see that as you read through the Gospel accounts. And so, again, as you're reading your Bible, you should be thinking, this is the man. This is the offspring, referring to one, who all of the blessing, all of the promises flow through. And then you continue, and then you see that he dies, he's crucified. And you may be thinking as you read, whoa, 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 what's happening, God? I, I wasn't expecting that. Then He rises from the grave. 
And then what does He give to His people? He gives them the Spirit of God, which we saw last week is the blessing that God promised, the inheritance that God promised to Abraham long ago. It comes through this man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is what Paul is referring to here in verse 16. He's saying, Galatians, remember that when God made His covenant to Abraham, He had in mind the Christ, Jesus. That's who He made His promise to. He made it to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ, as he says at the end of verse 16 there. And so now he picks back up in verse 17, and now he's continuing in his argument that he began in verse 15. So what did he say in verse 15? Think about this man-made covenant that you know of in your day through your system of law. If men or humans can make a covenant and they're not allowed to break it or change it or do away with it, how much more so is this of God and His covenant that He made long ago? And so He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, and when He says 430 years afterward, I think He's referring to the last time that God gave His promise to one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob, before he went into the land of Egypt and they became slaves for 430 years. So I think that's what he's referring to there. That's the only way I can make sense of him referring to an exact number of 430 years. So which came 430 years when God made His last promise to Jacob before they went into Egypt, even though He gave the law afterward, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified or confirmed by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes... Or no, excuse me. Let me stop right there. So it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So even though God, 430 years after He made that last promise to Jacob that all the nations would be blessed through this particular offspring, He then gives a law. It doesn't do away with that covenant that He made. It doesn't contradict it. And then Paul says, continuing in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So he says, it can only come through either one of these. It can't come through both. You know, if God intended for the promise to come through the law, then He would have worked it out through the law. It would have had to come through works. But... He shows that God explicitly gave it to Abraham by a promise, which is what we saw week before last in verses 7 to 9. Abraham wasn't justified by works. He wasn't justified by circumcision. He was justified by his faith in God's promises. God explicitly showed that He gave it through promises or through His grace, not through the law. That's what he's showing here. The law does not do away with the original covenant that has been made by God. Now, that brings up more questions, right? I mean, we still really we don't understand yet, okay, well, why did God give the law? And that's why in verse 19, Paul raises this question. Now, who was asking this question? that made Paul have to deal with it? I'm not sure. The Judaizers could have been asking this question, trying to catch Paul off guard, you know, kind of in a a sneaky way. Okay, Paul, you know, if that's what you think, if that's your interpretation of the Bible, tell us. Why did God give the law then, Paul? You know, answer us that. You know, if that's His purpose, then why would God give the law? I mean, doesn't that contradict, 
You know, they could be asking in that way, or the Galatians, in a genuine way, could be asking, Paul, tell us, why did God give the law then? Help us to understand. But either way, it's an important question that needs to be answered. And let me just throw in there, as we're going through this, you need to recognize that as Paul's doing all of this, he's helping you to know how to read the Bible. He's teaching you specifically how to read and to interpret the Old Testament. You know, like I was talking about a moment ago, you know, very often the Old Testament is difficult to read, it's difficult to interpret, it's difficult to know how to live in light of the Lord Jesus Christ coming on the scene. Well, He's showing us in these verses as He brings up Scripture from the Old Testament, as He interprets it, He's showing us how to read the Bible, how to interpret them. So keep that in mind as we go through these verses and as we continue throughout chapter 3 and on into chapter 4. Paul is helping us to, to read the Bible. So in verse 19, the first question that's raised, Why then the law? Why did God give the law then, Paul? What, what was His purpose if it's always been about faith, being justified, counted righteous before God by faith and not by works? Why does He give a law that is about works? And Paul has his answer ready. He says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So Paul says that the law was given because of transgressions. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, have a little bit of the knowledge of the Old Testament law, you know that the law served multiple purposes. For example, the law allowed God's people to live in His midst because there was a sacrificial system in place that temporarily dealt with sins. That was one purpose of the law. It enabled God's people to live in fellowship with Him because it temporarily dealt with their sin. Another purpose of the law is that it suppressed sin. Because it showed how evil sin actually was. It showed that sin was ultimately against God. And it it kind of it showed that it showed the people how bad sin was, and it kind of it suppressed their sin in a way. So it was a suppressor of sin. And next week we're going to see that the law also served as a guardian, as Paul says there. We're going to get into that next week as we go through those verses. But Paul says that the law served as a guardian as we were underneath that time frame in, in the Bible when God gave it. And then another purpose that the law served, which is the purpose that I think Paul is referring to here in our passage, is that the law actually increased Sin. You may be thinking, what? How? That just doesn't make sense. Why would God, who is good and holy and righteous and seeks for His people to be the same way, why would He give a law that He knew would increase sin? Turn with me to Romans chapter 7 because Paul deals with this in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. So Paul is unfolding all of this, similar to how he is here in Galatians. He's unfolding this to the Christians who are in Rome. And this is what he says in verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? You know, that's what we would be thinking. Is the law sinful then because it increases sin or because it causes sin? Does that mean that the law is sin? And he says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, and you need to pay close attention to the argument that he's about to give here, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known sin. I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So you see what Paul is saying there. It's not that the law itself is sinful. It's not that the law makes people sin. Like it, the law is saying, or it's kind of tempting them to sin. But what the law does do is that it comes before a rebellious heart, which is all of us, and it exposes our sin in a way that we would not have known if the law was not put before us. And if you were in our Sunday school lesson this morning, we were talking about some of this. You think about our rebellious hearts. And how do we tend to react when someone says, Thou shalt not do whatever it is? Well, our rebellious heart says, Well, I want to do it. You know, we respond in rebellion. You know, because of sin, this is how we are. The law comes into play, it exposes our sin, it says, it puts words to our sin, it says, You shall not commit murder, which is any form of hatred. You know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we receive that, and our rebellious hearts respond in rebellion. And we sin. That's how it increases sin. That's what Paul is referring to there in Romans chapter 7. It's also referring to, that's what he's referring to there also in verse 22 of Galatians chapter 3, which we're about to look at in a moment. In verse 22 where Paul says, But the Scripture, referring mainly to the law, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. So the law, in a way, it increases sin and it imprisons us underneath sin. But so, it doesn't leave us there. It does all of this with the aim that it moves us toward the promises of God. You see what I mean? It exposes your sin. It shows you how sinful you are so that you would be driven to God's promises all the more. It breaks your pride. It humbles you. It shows you that there is no way possible that you can obtain righteousness through your works. That's what Paul's referring to here in Galatians 3 where he says, it was added because of transgression until the offspring, Jesus Christ, as we've just seen, should come to whom the promise had been made. So once Christ came to who the promise had been made and He fulfilled the promise, He fulfilled the law, then grace would come through Him. And that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 5, in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God did not contradict His covenant, His original covenant, when He gave the law. Instead, He drove His people to it all the more, so that they would see their sin and say to themselves, I can't do this, O oh God, I need your grace. I need the promise of Abraham. Somebody has to do this for me, which is Christ. Now we come to verse 20, where Paul says, or second part of verse 19, verse 20, where he says, 
And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Moses writes, and he says that when God gave the law, angels were present there. And the intermediary that he refers to, or the mediator, the go-between, referring there to Moses. He was the, the mediator, or the intermediary as he refers to here. Now, why Paul puts this at the end of verse 19 and in verse 20, I have no idea. I don't know. I have no idea why Paul puts this in there with his argument. I don't know how he seeks to supplement his argument with what he says here. And normally, I would not feel very comfortable standing before you all in this pulpit not knowing what a verse means or not knowing how to interpret it in at least some way. But from what I understand, all the reading that I was doing, studying and listening to other pastors and preachers, there are somewhere around 300 interpretations of this one verse. So that makes me not feel so bad in not knowing what it means. But even though we're not real sure what Paul is trying to say here, it doesn't do away with the argument that he's doing because his main argument, is, as we just said, what we just looked at, is that the law does not contradict the promises of God. He added the law so that we would see and know our sin and be driven to the promise that's fulfilled in Christ. That's his main point in verses 19 to 20. That's his main argument there. Now verse 21, down to verse 22, where Paul raises the second question. He deals with the second question that's been raised. So everything that he's just said, it seems like the law would be contrary to the promises of God. And so the question goes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given, those, given to those who believe. The law is not contrary to the promises of God because God never intended the law to give life. As we saw previously, talking about last week, not that there's something wrong with the law, the law is holy, perfect, and good, and it does hold out life. But we can't receive life from the law because of our sin. So it was never intended by God to give life, but to one single person, the offspring, Jesus Christ, who was the only one who could fulfill the law. And so that's why Paul says, if... Where am I at here? For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law doesn't give life. Instead, it imprisons us under sin, like we were talking about a moment ago, and it drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he means there in verse, in the, toward the end of verse 22 where he says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it drives us to Christ so that whoever would believe and put their trust in Christ as Abraham did long ago, that they would receive life. So Paul in these verses is showing the Galatian Christians, and he's showing you, all's chapel, that even though God gave the law, and the Old Testament is often difficult to read and it's difficult to understand. You know, don't fall prey to the mistake that's being put on display here in Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, these people coming in and twisting it and making them believe that somehow justification comes by works and it comes by grace. No, that's not true. 
And Paul's showing that here in these verses. He's showing that it's always been the plan of God to project us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law does not contradict the promises of God because the law was never intended to give life, but to drive us to the promise that would give life, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close where I begin, where I began the sermon, that the Bible is often very difficult to read and it's very difficult to interpret. But let Paul help you, like what we're talking about here this morning. When you're reading your Bible... Keep these things in mind. Now, I'm not saying that when you understand that the Bible is all about Christ and you read the Bible in light of the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's all of a sudden going to become simple, but you will know that you will be interpreting it rightly, even though if you don't necessarily understand all of the details, you will know that it's pointing ultimately to Christ, as Paul is showing here which is what the Galatians were not grounded in and what they did not understand and which caused them to become in danger of believing heresy, which is why Paul's writing to them in the first place. So let us again learn from what's going on here in this letter. And whenever we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament, let us have Jesus Christ in mind, knowing that it drives us to Him. That when the law says to you, you are a sinner and it exposes your sin, that grace abounded all the more in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come and although Your Word is difficult as we were talking about, although it's difficult to understand, although it's difficult to interpret. Father, we thank You for men like the Apostle Paul who puts these passages, these verses before us that help us, that show us, that interpret these verses for us, that show us it's all about Christ. It's not about our works. It's not about our accomplishments. We are driven to the cross of the Lord Jesus. We are driven to the offspring as You made your original covenant with Abraham in the beginning. It drives us to Jesus, and I pray that we would know that. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.